The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 22. The word of God speaks to us. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual, spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and the 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything. No, I simply imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participa participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table and of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of God. Awesome. Thank you, sis. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Uh, welcome. Welcome to Frontline. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm really glad you guys are here. This is a good season in the life of our church. It's a great, great time to get connected into this community and to uh, be a part of what God's doing here. So if you got a Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've been walking through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, and today we get to a meaty, meaty passage. So I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you guys to pray for me, and we're going to do work. Uh, hey, Father, I'm so thankful for my friends. I'm so thankful for your faithfulness today. And uh, Father, just as we prayed this morning before church, God, my request is that those of us that need consolation from your word would be consoled. 
There's a lot of people in this room, Lord, that have a tender conscience and they're really struggling to find comfort, hope, and joy in the midst of struggles of life. And I pray that today would be a day that your word builds them and strengthens them and gives them renewed hope and resiliency. God, I also pray that those of us that need to hear the warnings in your word would hear the warnings. Any places where our conscience has become seared and hard and we're in danger of not finishing the race, would you minister to us in those places? And as we, uh, as we talk about this difficult passage, Lord, we just thank you that you inspired it, that you gave it to us as a gift. So help us to posture ourselves to wrestle with your word, to hear your word, and uh, most importantly, to be doers of your word. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, and everybody said... Amen. Hey, so something that most of you guys already know is that Rocky IV is one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, not only did Rocky IV end the Cold War single-handedly, but Rocky IV is 31.9% sports training montage. Don't ask me how I know that. I just know. The only thing that could have made Rocky IV a better movie would have been if it was 100% sports training montage. It's an amazing movie. And I mention that because last week where Kevin left off is the best sports training montage in the whole Bible. Here's what 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 says. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified." Here's what Paul is saying. Uh, the Christian life is not like an all-inclusive resort in Cabo. The Christian life is like a race. It's like a long race, a hard race, a painful race, a race in which you need to experience the grace of God to discipline yourself so that you can get to the finish line. Not only that, but this is really offensive to some of us in the room. Paul uses the metaphor of a boxing match, of a fight. The Christian life is like being in a ring with an opponent. It's like taking blows to the face. It's bloody and it's hard and it's long and it's difficult. And what Paul is saying is that even though he's an apostle who encountered Jesus in his resurrection, even though Paul has experienced the outpouring of God's spirit in profound ways, even though Paul has revelation of the mysteries of God, Paul is mindful and concerned that he himself needs to be careful to not be disqualified. Now, if Paul needs to be careful on the race to not be disqualified, I feel like infinitely more I need to be careful on the race to not be disqualified. If Paul's aware of the fact that he needs to be disciplined, sober, and alert in the race and in the fight, how much more so do you and me and the Corinthians need to be awake? Need to be awake. And Paul in particular is concerned about three things that could disqualify the Corinthians. And we've been talking about them throughout the course of this whole book, and they've sort of been magnified since we got to chapter eight. Let me list them. Three things that Paul's really concerned could blow up the Corinthians race. 
all right, that could keep them from getting to the great day in faith. Here's the three things. The first thing is that the Corinthians had a really mistaken understanding of the sacraments. They had an almost magical view of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the way that that's playing itself out in the life of their church is that they kind of think that what happens on Sunday as people are baptized at the beginning of their walk with Jesus and what happens at the Lord's Supper as we take the cup and take the bread is so powerful and almost magical that it inoculates them against the things of the world to such a degree that they can do whatever they want on Monday. If you've been baptized and if you receive the Lord's Supper on Sunday, it's okay if you visit prostitutes on Thursday. It's okay. It's okay if you go into pagan temples and participate in pagan rituals on Tuesday. And what Paul is going to say in our text today is, hey guys, like the sacraments are not magical, but the sacraments are really powerful. And the point of the sacraments is not to be disconnected from the other hours of your week. What happens on Sunday in the hour and 15 minutes in which we gather, in which people are baptized frequently, in which Christians receive the Lord's Supper, is to fill you and encourage you so that you can be more integrated in following Jesus all 168 hours of your week. The second thing that he's concerned about is the Corinthians have a crazy idea of Christian liberty. They misunderstand Christian freedom. And what's happened in the Corinthian church is they think that they've been so free by the grace of God in Jesus that they're free even to do the things that God explicitly forbids in Scripture. Paul has preached the gospel of God's grace, which is free grace. It's the best news in the world. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. It's a gift. We couldn't get to God, so God came to us. But the Corinthians have taken that to a conclusion that's wrong. They've started to think that because we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, then that means fruit doesn't matter. That means obedience doesn't matter. That means that character doesn't matter. And they've left off, they've left off what grace should produce in people, which is ongoing repentance, love for Jesus, a desire to follow Christ between Sundays. Now, the third thing that's really confusing in the Corinthian church, and we have to do some contextual work here, is they just have, they have a mistaken notion about idols, and they're not 100% wrong, but they're like 50% wrong. And the idea in the Corinthian church, in a city that's surrounded by shrines and temples, where people are constantly eating in these temples, food that's been sacrificed to idols, the Corinthians' logic goes like this. They say, hey, we know that there's only one true God. And they're right about that. Idols aren't gods. They're the creation of human hands. They can't hear you. They can't save you. They don't answer your prayers. They're just wood and they're stone and they're metal. But their conclusion is wrong. They think, therefore, since there's only one true God and idols aren't real, we're free to participate in pagan rituals and in pagan temples because it doesn't matter. And what Paul is going to say today is, hey, yeah, that's true. There's only one true God and idols aren't anything, but he wants them to understand and he wants us to understand that the power at work behind idols is supernatural and it's dark and it's evil and it's demonic. 
And all three of those mistaken notions, their misunderstanding of the sacraments that leads to a compartmentalized Christian life. I know none of us in the Midwest struggle with that. That's an ancient thing that went away with Corinth. Just kidding, right? Their mistaken notion of the sacraments in which they've sort of cordoned off Sunday is the time that they really follow Jesus and the rest of the week belongs to them. Their mistaken understanding of freedom, that freedom in Jesus means that we can do whatever we want, even things that God forbids, and their misunderstanding of idols is leading to the danger that they might not finish the race, they might not finish in faith, they might not get to see Jesus face to face. And Paul wants to plead with them and appeal to them from the word of God to come back to sobriety. And here's what he's going to start with. He's going to remind them that old covenant Israel also had a kind of baptism and a kind of Lord's Supper. Old Testament Israel experienced the power of God. And even though there were a lot of people in Israel that saw God's great deliverance from Egypt, they had proximity with God. They didn't actually know, love, and obey God. So take your Bible and look what happens in chapter 10, starting in verse 1. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink and they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay, here's what he's saying, and we don't have time to unpack all of this, but he's saying, hey, look, Gentile Christians, please understand that the whole old covenant belongs to you, that the people of God is made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, so it's not inappropriate for Paul to say people from Gentile backgrounds, these are your fathers, These are your fathers. This is your spiritual heritage. This is your story. And what Paul wants to remind them is, hey guys, be really careful in putting your confidence in baptism and in the Lord's Supper as the things that save you because Israel even experienced a kind of baptism and a kind of Lord's Supper where God brought them through the waters of the Red Sea and delivered them. And God fed them from manna in the wilderness. And Jesus is the one that did all of that, which is an amazing Christological understanding of the Old Testament. But nonetheless, even though they had proximity to the power of God, they weren't transformed by the power of God. They didn't love God. They didn't fear God. They didn't obey God. So he's saying, hey, Christians, we have to be really sober. We have to be really careful. We have to be really careful because we can be familiar with the things of God, but we can lose a sense of the glory of God and the beauty of God and the intimacy that we have with God through Jesus that's supposed to lead not to a life of not looking like Jesus, but to a life of slowly, incrementally, with lots of failures and lots of mistakes and lots of repentance, growing to look more like Jesus. And then he's going to give some specific examples. He's going to say that that Israel is an example of the problem of evil desire. So understand, like in Paul's theology, in the whole theology of God's word, the problem with sin is not just arbitrary external faux pas that we make. The problem with all sin is that it comes from our heart. It comes from our evil desires. Um, John Calvin once said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. So the problem is not just that we do wrong things with our hands. The problem is that evil flows 
from the inside of our being. And Paul's going to remind them of a few examples from Israel, starting in verse 6. Follow along. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Here's what Paul is saying. Um, There were three examples of ways in which evil desire led to destruction and shipwrecking of the race of Israel. The first is idolatry. Um, You can read about this later this week in Exodus chapter 32. It's this really tragic moment where God flexes his strength for the people of God. He hears their prayers for deliverance. He moves in crazy powerful ways to get them out of Egypt. He does miracles. And then God calls Moses up on top of Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is up there, the children of Israel immediately... Immediately after seeing God's glory and his power and his presence and his kindness and his faithfulness, immediately, as soon as Moses disappears, the people of Israel say to Aaron, hey, Moses is gone. We don't know when he's coming back. Make us a golden calf so that we can worship it as God so it can provide for us. And the children of Israel, the children of Israel, in that moment of idolatry, that idolatry led to sexual immorality. When it says that they rose up to play, that's a euphemism for sexual immorality. So they worshiped the golden calf, they, they disobeyed God, they fell into idolatry, which led to sexual sin. He gives another example of sexual immorality that leads to idolatry. That's Numbers chapter 25. And what happens in that story is that the children of Israel move into the land of Moab and the men of Israel start having sexual relationships with the women of Moab. And the women of Moab start influencing the children of Israel away from God to worship the idols of Moab. And it's this really tragic moment. In fact, there's one story in the midst of this act of rebellion in which a guy literally takes a woman into his tent to have sexual relations with her in front of the entire congregation of Israel. It's tragic. So you have idolatry that leads to sexual immorality, and then you have sexual immorality that leads to idolatry, and then you just have what Paul mentions as rebellion and grumbling. Rebellion and grumbling. That's found in in Numbers chapter 21. Now, what's really interesting about this is this story can feel a bit like a Christopher Nolan movie where it's like, it's like a dream within a dream within a dream because we have three contexts that we have to think about. We have to think about What does this mean for our context in 2023? We have to think about what did this mean 2,000 years ago in the context of Corinth in their city? And and what is Paul doing to reach back in time all the way to ancient Israel? And how do those three contexts together lead us to know, love, and obey Jesus? And what Paul is doing that's really powerful, what Paul is doing is saying, hey, the word of God, the word of God is one of the means through which God actually delivers his people through the gift of both warning and consolation. Both warning and consolation. And we need, as the people of God, we need warnings 
when our necks are stiff and our hearts are stubborn, and we need consolation when we're beaten down and despairing. And the word of God, and one of the reasons that the word of God is so beautiful and powerful and full of the life of God, is that the word of God has the ability to apply truth and beauty and meaning in appropriate ways to all the people in this room at the very same time. Look at this. This is explicitly clear in chapter 12 and then 13 and 14. First a warning, then a consolation. Paul says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He's saying, hey guys, you're putting confidence in the sacraments, but it's not connected to the rest of your week. You, like Israel, are falling into idolatry. You, like Israel, are falling into sexual immorality. You, like Israel, are rebellious towards Jesus. You, like Israel, are grumbling and complaining and not worshiping and enjoying God. And what he says is, you need to be really careful when you think you're going to stand lest you fall. He's saying, hey, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think that just because in the church at Corinth, God's power is moving and people are getting baptized. And just because there's even signs and wonders and miracles, don't think that you can then leave in confidence and assurance in yourself that you're going to get to the end. Be really careful. Be really careful. And and I just want to pause here and say, hey, man, like one of the gifts that God might see fit to give today is to meet some of us that are in a place of crossroads, a place where maybe one or two more steps towards rebellion, towards the hardening of your conscience might be the final step that you take. And I don't say that to be dramatic or try to scare you. I say that to say like, The stakes are infinitely high. Paul's talking about a destination at the end of the race that is beautiful and worth it. And the warning, the warning is meant to meet us when our hearts get hard, when our hearts get calloused, when we get stuck in unrepentant sin. The warnings are a gift from God because God loves you. He loves you. Others need consolation. Listen listen to verse 13. Paul can't help but throw this in because he knows the tenderness of God. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you you may be able to endure it. Here's what Paul is doing in essence. He's saying, hey man, like with most of the children of Israel, God was not pleased. Their hearts were hardened. And they didn't heed the warnings of God, and it was disastrous. They fell in the wilderness. And then Paul is like, hey, but guys, don't think that the gig is, don't think that the game is rigged. Don't think that God doesn't love you. Don't think that God doesn't care about your temptations. The truth is, is that before God with a tender heart, God is sovereign over the means and the end, and he's working in your life. And he's not gonna let you, he's not gonna let you be overwhelmed with temptation that will strip you of all agency if you're surrendering to Jesus. If you're looking for the way of escape, God's gonna guide you and protect you and lead you and deliver you. And therefore, in light of consolations and warnings, he says, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. 
Now, what Paul does next at the end of our text today, I think is really powerful. Because the work that Paul wants to do at the end in comparing and contrasting what's similar between the table of the Lord and the table of demons and what's different from the table of the Lord and the table of demons becomes a gift to help reshape our desires. If desire's the problem, if desire's the problem, and desire is the problem, uh, one writer put it like this, your heart, your heart is a directional compass pointing to what you love the most. And sadly for the children of Israel, what they loved the most were idols and sexual immorality for many of them. And what Paul is going to do in the next moment is he's going to remind us that what we do on Sunday with the Lord's Supper, when we eat this meal, is a gift of God to reshape the desires of our life so that we can have fuel and power through the Holy Spirit to resist temptation and to flee evil between Sundays. And he's going to tell them that the Lord's Supper isn't magic, it's not magic, but it is a powerful gift that helps shape our desires and lead us into greater contrast with evil. It does help us flee idolatry. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 15. He says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessings that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat of the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Okay, this is really important. We have to ask the question, if we're going to understand this text, what does Paul mean by participant? Other translations might say sharing. Uh, do we not share in the blood of Jesus? Do we not share in the body of Jesus? Don't be sharers in the table of demons. What is Paul really getting at? The cup is participation in the blood of Jesus. The bread is participation in the body of Jesus. Israel were participants in the altar. Do not be participants with demons. What does it mean to participate? What is he talking about? Well, the first thing I want to mention is that participating in the body and blood of Jesus is not that this meal magically turns into the literal blood and body of Jesus. It's not that we're literally eating Jesus. And we know that because Paul mentions Israel participating in the altar, and the way that Israel participated in the altar was by enjoying and receiving and being shaped by all God provided in the sacrifice that was made on the altar. As the animal was sacrificed for old covenant Israel, God was making a way for their sins to be forgiven, for them to receive mercy and reconciliation and rest restoration. And what Paul is pointing out is that at the Lord's Supper, we remember every single week and we receive afresh every single week the blessings and benefits of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. Because Jesus bore our wrath on the cross, because he died in our place, because he took our sin and he took our shame, because the lamb was slain for us, you and me have been given in Jesus forgiveness, mercy, restoration, reconciliation, and the best gift of all, we've been given Jesus himself. Jesus himself. And one of the things that 
we say when we come to the Lord's Supper is that this is communion, communion. And I love that. Communion means deep, intimate fellowship. And that's exactly what happens when we come to this meal. To participate in this meal is to receive and remember afresh all that God provided for you through the death of Jesus and through the resurrection of Jesus so that you can be with Jesus. So that you can be open to him and vulnerable to him and submitted to him so that in enjoying him, you can have your desires reshaped, your palate redesigned to love Jesus more than we love the idols of this world. And the contrast and the similarity between that that openness to Jesus, that sharing with Jesus, that vulnerability to Jesus is exactly what he's driving at when it comes to pagan feasts. Look at chapter 19. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants or sharers with demons. You cannot drink the table of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Here's what Paul is saying. Hey, Corinthians, it's true that idols aren't anything. They're just wood and metal. But behind the idols are demons. And Paul is saying that just as communion with Jesus is being open to Jesus, being with Jesus, being vulnerable to Jesus, submitting afresh to Jesus. When we partake of idolatry, he's saying that that is an openness to demons, a vulnerability to demons, a submission to demons. And this can get really confusing and really hard because we live in a culture that doesn't have that doesn't have typical ancient idols. Like we, we don't have shrines with statues that we build that we then pray to and worship. But here's the thing you gotta understand, like we are just as idolatrous as the city of Corinth. We're just as idolatrous as parts of the world where there's still a pantheon of idolatrous gods. That's part of the human condition in our sin. Our idols are often good things that we make ultimate things. Our idols are the places that we turn for ultimate meaning, for our deepest questions about who am I, what's my identity. Our idols are where we go for ultimate comfort, for ultimate satisfaction. Our idols are the places that we go when everything feels shaky and unsure. The ground of worship, the ground of worship is not just the ground that we stand on on Sunday mornings when we do confession and assurance and we sing these songs and then we come to the Lord's Supper. The ground of worship is literally wherever we're standing all the time because human beings are made to worship. And the problem is in our sinfulness, we worship stuff that's not God. Money, let me just list a few. Money and power and sex and family and career and comfort are not gods. They're not gods. They can't hear us. They can't save us. They can't name us. But when we start worshiping them as if they were gods, 
What Paul is pointing to is that behind those things, when they're idols, there actually is demonic power that we surrender to, that we make ourselves vulnerable to. And Paul is saying that it's possible to call yourself a Christian and then share at the table of demons. One of the questions to help diagnose where our idols really lie is the question, hey, what do you want more than Jesus? What can you not live without? What gives us our meaning? And it's totally possible for really bad things to be our idols, and those bad things become obvious at some point. Like if you're totally addicted to drugs and you're living for your next fix, at some point, the bottom falls out and you realize, oh, like that thing couldn't do what I thought it could do for me. But the problem for a lot of us is that like we just take good gifts and we elevate them to the place of God. And we sometimes think even when they fail us, that if we just keep trying harder, if we just keep offering more allegiance, at some point it's going to work. And what Paul is saying is like the thing about idols that's so tricky is no, they're not God's. But behind those idols, there are powers that want to work to ensnare, to trap, to trick, and to deceive. Autonomy can be an idol. Marriage can be an idol. Hey, kids can be an idol. What I want to do today, before we come to the Lord's Supper, is I just want to end with the last little phrase that Paul uses, because it's, it sounds like really bad news, but it's actually really beautiful news if you hear it rightly. Verse 22 is the last sentence in this little section, and Paul says this, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Jealousy, nine times out of 10 in a fallen sinful world is a really ugly thing, right? Like je jealousy is gross. We, we see jealousy with junior high kids, um, jealousy in a spouse, like jealousy that's twisted and off can make people controlling and weird. Like we see bad jealousy all over the world. Okay, God, God is perfect and without sin. So when the Bible describes one of God's attributes as jealousy, it has to be of a different category. Now here's what's really interesting. The Bible consistently connects idolatry and sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, the opening of ourselves to another person, that deep, profound spiritual and physical and emotional intimacy and worship are deeply connected. That's why in almost every pagan shrine, there was sexual immorality. What's really fascinating about this is that when the Bible talks about old covenant Israel and their idolatry, it keeps pointing back to the jealousy of God as their rightful husband and true spouse. And what we actually see in the jealousy of God is not something that's controlling and heavy handed and gross and creepy. What we see in the jealousy of God is the pure love, the pure love of God in which he's unwilling to share his people with gods that want to eat them alive. And he's relentless in his pursuit of all of our lives because the idols that we go to to worship lead us into a false intimacy and then they leave us completely barren and crushed. 
And God loves you so much. He loves you so much that he gives consolations and he gives warnings and he gives means like the Lord's Supper and community and brotherhood and sisterhood so that we can fight together to have our desires reshaped in the presence of Jesus to not worship things that aren't God, but to worship and love the true and living God. To have our loves reordered. <laughs> it's okay to love your spouse. You're supposed to love your spouse. It's okay to want to get married. It's okay to want to do a good job at work. It's okay to be a good financial steward. It's, it's okay. It's okay to care about creation. It's okay to have interest in your life. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you have to be a monk in a monastery. But God in his love and his mercy will not allow a single thing in your life to be on an equal playing field for your allegiance and devotion with him because that will destroy you. It'll destroy you. And I suspect that most of us in the room right now, like we know where our idols are. We know where our idols are. And if you have any sobriety, you, you know that you're prone to idolatry. So I just want to invite you to take a minute and to go to the Lord in prayer. All of the Christian life is one of repentance in which we hear God's consolations and we hear his warnings and we keep coming back to Jesus. And we keep coming back to Jesus, not to just have dry external grudging obedience, but we keep coming back to Jesus, asking the spirit of God to rework our desires, that we would love him and go after him, that we could honestly say, the majority of my life, I can't honestly say this. I want to be able to say this for the totality of my life. I want to be able to say, there's nothing I can't live without if I have Jesus. And that seems so radical and so hard and so difficult. But listen, when we get to taste a little bit of that, it's so true and it's so freeing and it reorders the other loves of your life. It makes it possible to be a good mom. When you ask your kids to be your everything, you're putting a weight on them that will crush them and you're putting a weight on your shoulders that will crush you. When you ask your job to be your identity to tell you who you are, you're asking it to do something it can't do. When you put your hope in money for your comfort and for your security, you are creating a dynamic where you will constantly experience scarcity, fear, and anxiety. The one true living God loves you and is jealous for you. And that's good news. It's good news. But let's not, let's not miss the example of Old Covenant Israel that experienced both baptism and a kind of the Lord's Supper, but nonetheless didn't experience transformation. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you so much for your holy love. And uh, Lord, there's places where your love feels so other because it is. And it's hard for us to even, it's hard for us to even see it as good because it's so other. So Lord, I pray that your jealousy in its purity, in its holiness, in its mercy would surprise us today. Um, it would be crazy, it would be crazy for a husband or a wife to say that they love their spouse and then 
tolerate an open relationship. That's just crazy. It doesn't work. And so God, I pray that um, where those are the terms that we want to present to you as our God, you would lead us to repentance. That you would feed us today as we come to this meal. You would clothe us and encourage us and help us. And we ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.